Today, a psalm for connecting with some of the people with whom we feel least connected. Coffee with Kramer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Kramer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. So I have this contention, and it's not just mine, obviously. A lot of other people think this as well, or something similar to it, that the generation born at the turn of the millennium, and I know everyone talks about that generation as being different in one way or another, the generation born at the turn of the millennium and after that are much more likely to be existential in their thinking. I know not everybody uses that term. I've brought it up before a few times, but uh, we're not all familiar with it, so I'm going to clarify it in just a second. But it, it is something that seems fairly obvious to me. Uh, I've been involved in higher education since the turn of the millennium, meaning I've taught as a professor uh, at a university, a state university, and at uh, and here at Criswell College, a private school. I've all, I serve as the president here now. I'm around college students a lot, and so I've seen the transition in thinking over these different age groups uh, right up to now to the point where somebody who comes to college here now at 18 years old this year as college has just begun at Criswell College was born in 2004, for crying out loud. That's when I began serving at Criswell College as a professor. The, the, the big distinction is not that they're younger, though. The big distinction is that they, along with the people who are a little older than them as well, I mean, right? I, I would say for sure for four, five, six years older than them, but I would say right up to maybe 30 years old now, maybe those who were born 1995, 96, 97, somewhere in there, and after, they all, they not all, but in a, in a vast majority, seem to have a different way of seeing the world than the generations that are slightly older than them. Among, among my own adult children, I have a division around that age uh, that also shows up between my two older uh, children uh, who are, you know, 30-something and 30-something, and my two younger children who are 30-less-something and 20-something. Well, actually, they're both 30-something now. I'm getting older. But anyway, the point is, uh, I can even see the transition happening in, in them, even though they're siblings, because there are a few years difference between them. And, you know, to, to explain what it looks like, I, I wouldn't explain what any individual holds as a, as a particular uh, opinion about things, but it's just, I'll give you a simplified outline of what uh, an existential view of the world would look like in contrast with what a traditional view would look like. And then I want us to read the 32nd Psalm in light of that difference. So to take a very simplified outline, it would go like this. Here's a traditional outlook. 
And by that, I mean a modern outlook or an enlightened outlook. And enlightened is not a compliment. It's just a reference to the philosophical movement from the 17th century forward, blah, blah, blah. The traditional outlook would be something like this. We have truths that we hold, which we often confuse with facts, by the way. You know, for instance, a fact would be that people die, but the truth would be that death is bad, right? So truth has this value built into it and has an evaluative content built into it because we actually say it. So there are truths that we hold in a traditional sort of outlook on life or worldview, whatever you want to call it. And uh, our, so like, for instance, one fact would be that people experience things differently, but the truth we would put into that differently is that some things are beautiful and other things are not. So if you didn't hold this view, this modern view, you might not say that. You might say, well, anything's beautiful. It's just up to you to make it and so on like that. A second thing in this traditional view, not only are there truths, but there are causes and explanations for things. And this, that fact that you can explain anything if you're given enough information or if you take enough time to study it or whatever, the fact that things are caused by something else, that leads to a largely deterministic understanding of the world, even for people who are not determinists. I'm not a determinist. If you don't know anything else about me, you should know I'm not a determinist. I believe in radical free will, blah, blah, blah. I could spend a lot of time talking about that, but that's not the issue today. As a part of my worldview, I am very deterministic in my way of thinking, naturally. I have to assert the other things that I think. And so because in this sort of traditional worldview, we have a largely deterministic understanding of the world because we think everything is caused by something else. Everything has to be caused by something else, right? A thing doesn't exist before it does, so it had to be caused by something else. That includes human psychology. So, so everything, even our behaviors, can be explained by whatever was the case before it happened. So a serial murderer's mind was shaped by something, and then we try to figure out what that was so we can prevent other people from becoming serial killers and so on. Now, not every, again, not everybody who is traditional in their mindset, people like me, uh, wants to be a determinist or is a determinist. But... Not to be a determinist is to live in this tension with the world the way we naturally perceive it, because we would automatically say, oh, well, something caused that. Let's figure out what it was and prevent it from happening again, right? Okay, so those are two things that are involved in a traditional sort of outlook on the world. And then the third would be faith. And, and I introduced this one not because it's enlightenment-oriented, but because it is about the modern worldview, and it's sort of a romantic reaction to modernity, even a postmodern reaction to modernity, but it's still part of modernity. So in that, in faith, there is room for mystery and beauty and transcendence and narrative and for a community, and it goes beyond the narrow confines of science and sociology that most of us normally have in this traditional uh, outlook, but a lot, and I mean a lot of people have both the concepts of truth and uh, and uh, of causes and explanations, sort of a scientific understanding of the world, plus faith. And so it's sort of a normal way of seeing the world in the way we've understood it as 50-plus-year-olds or even 35-plus-year-olds. But then there is a contrast in this existential outlook. And again, these, this is a very simplified outline, but it's just something to give us some handholds while we're having the conversation today. So in the existential outlook, instead of truths, there is facticity. Uh, not just facts, but facticity. There are some hard realities that we confront and have to deal with. Most importantly, 
that we die. That's the big one. And that's why in existentialism, by the way, uh, there's so much emphasis on dying, you know, clean, well-lit room, things like that. Uh, but also isolation uh, go, is one of those facts that you just, you can't fully know anyone else. I'll bring that up later when we're going through the 32nd Psalm in a few minutes. Uh, so in contrast to truths, instead, in an existential outlook, there's facticity. In contrast to causes and explanations and sort of the deterministic outlook on life that is in the traditional worldview or outlook, there is freedom in the existential outlook, freedom, like radical freedom. So no matter the realities pushing in on us, no matter what happened to you when you were a kid, no matter what natural causes are happening around you, what we do with them and who we choose to be in their presence is up to us. So for instance, to use a classical example, being a coward in the First World War doesn't mean I have to be a coward in the next conflict that I face. I can choose to be someone different or something different in the process. So freedom is a part of this existential outlook on life. And then authenticity. Instead of, in, in the place of faith in something outside of us, there's authenticity. This can also replace truth, but it's uh, in the categories I'm giving today, I think it'll be easier for us to relate it this way. Authenticity is a contrast to faith. It doesn't matter that I put my faith in something outside of me. It matters that I am properly relating the facts of life and what I have freely chosen to be so that I'm living an authentic life. If I acknowledge the facts of life and I freely choose who I become out of that circumstance, then I'm living an authentic life. And so it's not so much about putting faith in something else as it is just being authentic. Okay, you get the idea. I am not saying with this that we have a generation of students who've studied Sartre. I'm not saying we have a generation of people who know Kierkegaard, and they've really uh, gone, you know, gone to seed in studying this out, and they've decided I'm going to be an existentialist, as it turns out. And so, I'm, anyway, I can make fun of it in one way or another, but it's all philosophical. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not talking about people who would ever even use the word existential, except, except in the simplified newsy sense. Uh, you may cease to exist if this war happens. You know, it's an existential crisis. What I mean is there are, that, that our culture is filled with younger people whose minds have been shaped by cartoons and graphic novels and music and, uh, and, and all kinds of creative arts, but also outside of that by uh, opinion pieces and lectures and by experiences and events, families that are uh, relating to each other in new and different ways and transitions in life that are forcing people to, to recognize about their, their own lives that they didn't know what they thought they knew or that they, they have to make choices that they didn't think they were going to have to make. And it's led them to a place where they have more of a, a view of the world that says, well, if, if you're really authentic, all it means is you can see the things that are really happening around you and you can act freely within that to become what you yourself want to be, right? And so this, this shows up all the time in the movies, in, in, all, in all of our entertainment venues. And, it, and it's sort of this cycle that's feeding itself in both directions. But I think in a lot of ways, the philosophy has matured into just an opinion that a lot of people, not, not an opinion, but a lens that a lot of people have through which they see the world. Okay, now that's my contention. Regardless of what you think about that, there are certainly a lot of people who have that view of the world. 
And so what I want to do in, t- in looking at Psalm 32, I've been going through the Psalms in my own studies, and every once in a while we pause and, and do an episode on another scripture. And so today's scripture is the next Psalm, Psalm 32. And in reading through this Psalm, there's such a profound point in the middle of it about the transition that this author goes through, the transformation that he goes through, uh, that uh, it seemed appropriate for saying, well, this would be a perfect point of connection with someone who had that other worldview, that different way of seeing the world than most of us who are constantly in Scripture have, which is more traditional, you know, in our worldview. So how would this help and all that is how I kind of want to take our approach to the psalm. I'm not going to change the meaning of the psalm or the direction of it, but just want to create that connection with what we might recognize as going on in it. So here is the 32nd psalm. This from the ESV, a mascal of David. So this is a Davidic psalm. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom Yahweh counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, next stanza. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Next stanza. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to Yahweh, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Next stanza. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, even in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Next stanza. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in Yahweh. Be glad in Yahweh, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That's the entire psalm. It's 11 verses, and it's really divided into couplets of verses, so just two verses at a time, with the exception of verse 5, which stands by itself. And so the first thing I want to point out about it is that the way the psalm is written is the opening, the two verses that are at the opening, are what I'll call in a moment a fait accompli. They're, they're, they're David's expression of what has essentially already happened. And I say essentially because it sort of has this ambiguous meaning to it. In the one sense, it has already happened to him. He's encountered this. He has experienced it personally. In another sense, because it's already happened to him, it is in effect already available to anyone. And so it can already have happened for them if they will accept it. But that comes in a moment, not yet. So you have the opening where he's saying, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man in whom the Lord, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. All those things are already done. And then when you get to the end, it's sort of different. So in the last two verses, at the end of it, like you would expect it to have changed through the, through the reading of the psalm, by the time you get to the end, he's describing for all of his listeners 
this communal sense of rejoicing in the goodness that came from the Lord and in having escaped the judgment that was going to come to them. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So he's gone from something that's being proffered as real in him and could be real in you to something that now we rejoice in together as a community. And that, because the opening and the closing are written the way they are, make it really obvious in the middle of the psalm what's going on when you have basically two pieces. So in in verses 3 through 5, you have this really, I mean, yeah, in verses 3 through 5, you have this really obvious focus on his personal experience. It's all written about him and what he's going through. I kept silent. I acknowledged my sin. And I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. You forgave the iniquity of my sin, and so on. I'll come back and read it in a moment in more detail. But, you know, it is about his personal experience. It's basically his testimony. The second part of the, of the middle of the psalm, verses 6 through 9, 6 and 7, and then 8 and 9, are about him conveying that to the community. So therefore, let everyone who's godly offer prayers like this. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go and so on. And that's why when he ends the psalm, it makes sense that now he's pivoted and is saying to the whole congregation in a psalm, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy all you upright in heart. So you get the picture of the psalm. He's going from this promise about anyone who trusts in God being blessed with forgiveness to a personal statement of how it became real in him, to an invitation to the community about how it could become real in them, to then a celebration together with those who have embraced it. And that's the nature of this psalm every time it's sung, right? Okay, so that's Psalm 32 as a broad picture. The details give us this beautiful imagery over and over in a way that makes clear the value and importance of forgiveness and also the transformation that's worked in us when we go from being one kind of a person to another kind of a person, and not by sheer will, as it turns out. And that becomes a really important connection between those of us who think of the world in a more traditional way and those that we know who seem so different, right? They watch different movies that have endings that are confusing, and they're listening to songs that don't make sense to us, and what's wrong with this generation? And this gives us a hook for being able to say, not not let me talk you into the traditional worldview, because your worldview is no better than theirs. My worldview is no better than theirs. A modern worldview is not better than an existential worldview. They're just worldviews. They're just lenses. They're broken. The faith is available to anyone who's willing to put their trust in Yahweh. And so here's the, here's the description as it goes through the psalm. So in the, in the first part, what I called a fait accompli, I'll clarify in just a moment. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. The idea is that it's lifted off of him. Whose sin then, in a different metaphor, is covered. So it's covered up. So in one sense, it's lifted off of him. In another sense, it's covered up. There's always more metaphor that has to be used to communicate the idea of forgiveness than just a single term. Uh, you know, it's, it's part of the idea of the scapegoat also. You have to have two goats in order to make sense of forgiveness. One goat carries the sins off into the wilderness, but the other goat, you know, too bad for you. Uh, that imagery has to be used because there's so much involved in the sacrifice. Someone dies for sin, but then someone escapes with that sin and carries it away from us and so on. So the same idea here, your sin is lifted off of you, but at the same time, it's covered up so that it's no longer seen. 
that becomes important later in the psalm for why that particular metaphor might be important to us. In the second verse, he goes on to say, so first of all, his transgression is forgiven, his sin is covered, and notice this is the description of the blessed man. Blessed is the one, blessed is the man. That's how the first two verses begin, both each verse. Blessed is the one in verse one, blessed is the one, the person, the man. In verse two, it's the person, you know, it's the idea of humanity. So blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. So the blessed man is not a person without transgression. It's the one whose transgression is forgiven. It's not one without sin. It's one whose sin is covered. Blessed, he says again, is not the man with no iniquity, but the one against whom there is no iniquity counted. The Lord doesn't regard their iniquity. And the only absolute term that's brought in to any of these descriptions in the first two verses about the blessed man, the blessed person, is that there is no deceit. It ends with that expression, and in whose spirit there is no deceit, which might make you say, well, no wonder his uh, transgressions are forgiven, his sin is covered, and his iniquity isn't counted against him. I mean, he's an honest person, and in his honesty, I mean, what could God do but forgive him? Of course he was going to forgive him. The only reason deceit isn't negated by something else, you know, the, uh, tra- the like forgiveness or the blessedness negated by the transgression, which then has to be forgiven and so on. The only reason it doesn't have that negation against it anywhere is because it comes in the next verse with the transition to the next statement. Because when he says, in whose spirit there is no deceit, you think, oh, wow, finally, I found an honest person. And then David says, let me tell you how this came to be real in me that I became a person whose transgression was forgiven, sin was covered, iniquity wasn't counted against him, and in whom there's no deceit. It started with this. I used to keep silent. (laughs) I mean, that's him saying I used to be deceptive. I used to lie about it. I used to say, oh, no, no, there's nothing to confess. Nothing to see here. Wave off the vision of it. And so starting in verse 3 with the personal experience that David has, we know not only is the blessed man a transgressor and a sinner and iniquitous, even though it's forgiven and covered and not counted against him, but he's also a person who was lying. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He refused to open his mouth to speak to Yahweh the truth so that he could be forgiven. He refused to do that, but he was groaning out words. Job describes things this way. Other authors in the Old Testament describe things in exactly the same way, our groaning before him doesn't mean he wasn't speaking words, but it does mean he's not speaking transparently, honestly, truthfully, openly, certainly not with confession. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, that's in verse 3, because day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength, he uses the image that all of us who are living in Texas, I'm in Dallas, Texas, right, where Crystal College is, I mean, it's been over 100 degrees for umpteen days this summer. We know how hot it is. That's exactly the kind of climate David is describing when he says this, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So we know what it is to be out there and perishing in the heat. And he says, that's what my life was like when I was trying to cover everything up and say, no, it's all all good here. There's nothing to see. I I was sizzling away on a hot parking lot in the middle of summer and saying, well, I'm comfortable. No, I'm not sweating. I'm not sweating. Everything's fine. You don't don't need to pay attention here. And he was collapsing right in front of reality. And then he says this, starting in verse 5. And this is the exchange. In his personal experience, this is what begins the transition. So again, the, the thing he's going to describe in the end is that this person is blessed because they're forgiven. Their sins are covered. Their iniquity is not counted against them. 
But the opening to this is to, to describe himself in an original position where he's such a liar that while he is perishing, he's refusing to say anything about it that's honest, that would admit that he's brought it upon himself or that he is suffering because he is a sinner or anything like that. He's just not telling the truth. And so in verse 5, he becomes someone different. From the original position, he moves to this other position. How? How does he get there? Here's the exchange. He uncovers something, and therefore it's covered up. He opens something up, and therefore it's lifted off. And it comes out like this in verse 5. Then, it doesn't say then, but that's the point of the psalm in verse 5. It stands by itself. It's disruptive. I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover my iniquity. And if you're wondering why I took keeping silent to be deceptive, I mean, it's this. In verse 5, he's saying the contrast to my silence was when I finally admitted, I acknowledged the truth. I acknowledged my sin to you. And and by the way, as I'm starting to read into verse 5, you should know there are five different times and ways that he refers to his guilt, to, to what he's done that's wrong sin and iniquity and transgression and iniquity, and then repeating the word sin again. It's like this chiasm of terms about how wrong he is. And what he says is this, I acknowledged my sin to you. This is all he does. I acknowledged my sin to you. I stopped covering my iniquity. I did not cover my iniquity. And again, this is not an accident. The language is deliberate. In verse 1, The statement is, blessed is the one whose sin is covered. And he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And if you say, well, he just happened to use the same word. No, 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 keep listening. And I said, in verse 5, he said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave, using the same word for lifted, you forgave, you lifted the iniquity of my sin. Remember that first verse, blessed is the one whose transgression is lifted, forgiven, whose sin is covered. And so he says, here, I I opened my my sin to you, this thing that was weighing me down, and, and your own hand was heavy on me in this original position. I was condemned not only by my own guilt, but your hand was reaching out and burdening me with this guilt that belonged to me. And then I finally acknowledged my sin to you. I opened up and admitted that I deserved to have your hand pressing down on me. So I uncovered my sin to you. And in uncovering it, you took your hand off of me. And not only that, you lifted the sin itself off of me. And then you covered me up so that I was no longer buried under this weight of sin. The, the miracle here, and this is, this is the thing that I think is amazing about it. If you, if you go back to verses 1 and 2, let me, let me create the hook for you that I'm talking about. First, let me take the first two verses and just talk about how this connects with us. In the first two verses, when we're saying the one who's blessed is one whose transgression is forgiven and so on, the way we read those things as a fait accompli, as I was mentioning a moment ago, as something that's already done. You know, it's already, there's nothing you can do about it. You may not know about it yet, but this is the way it is. This is the reality. We read these headers, these opening stanzas that way, 
because they do describe the end of the story. The thing the psalmist wants us to know is available to us, and then he's going to describe how to get there in the rest of the psalm in this messy, emotional, experiential, narratival, whatever way that's not just stating facts, right? So this is the idea in the first two verses or the first verse or the opening stanza of a lot of psalms. And because it's such a fait accompli, it's already done, that role can make, that, that role that those first couple of verses have in this, in this psalm, can make that opening look like it is determined, that it is a determined fate, that even though it's fulfilled through the apparent mess of the rest of the psalm, it's all done. There's nothing to be decided. Just, you know, you see the end of the story and just kind of ride out the rest of it, but you're going to end up where you're going to end up, right? He's right, but the reality of this psalm, and this is, I don't, I'll clarify that in a moment. I'll come back to that in a moment. But he's writing it for, in that way for this reason, because it is accomplished in his life. He has experienced it but it's not as a determined outcome for anyone else. That's why the, the conclusion is split between those who are facing the sorrows of the wicked and those who are glad in Yahweh. It's not a determined outcome for anyone else. It, it is a man showing, it's like somebody you know, standing in front of you and saying, look, here are the slides from my vacation. Can you look at the mountaintop here? Look at the ocean. Look at that. Look at the colors. Oh, man, it was so great. We were on this and that. And it was just the greatest trip I've ever been on. And you got to go on this trip. It's like that. It doesn't mean you've been on the trip. It doesn't mean everyone's going on the trip. But it does mean that mountain really is there. And that ocean really is there, and that vacation really did happen, and that's what he's saying in, in bringing this out. Now, that makes this identify with those of us who are more traditional in our understanding of the world because it does make such sense. Oh, well, this is an accomplished fact and uh, because it's set, and we know how to get there, and we know the mechanisms to bring it about. It's all done, you know? So, hey, just follow the steps, say the magic words, and suddenly you'll be in the act of forgiveness as well, and all is well. And in our traditional way of thinking, that's what we do a lot of times. And I, I'm not saying that's the essence of the gospel. I'm saying that's the way a lot of modern people perceive it, that we take good news, legitimately good news, and we convey it in the way that it makes sense to us. Hey, here's the good news. Jesus died for your sins. You're a sinner. Jesus died for you. So here's the formula. You apply the formula, and the outcome will be determined by the causes that you've been in effect by uttering this prayer. I'm not saying that sharing the gospel is a reduction to that kind of absurdity. I am saying our worldview forces us into a mold where that's how we understand it. We just sort of see it as this deterministic outcome that we can describe in mechanistic or even almost scientific ways, formulaic ways. Fine, but we understand the psalm is really a beautiful expression of a truth that connects with that worldview because, lo and behold, forgiveness really is there waiting to bless the one who confesses. So yes, confess, be blessed, have God cover your sins. That's a glorious way to understand this psalm. The other thing that I find fascinating about the psalm, though, is what happens in verse 5 compared with verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4, when he's keeping silent, his bones are wasting away, he's groaning all day, God's hand is heavy upon him, he's drying up like in the heat of summer, and then in a moment, there's this transition, and he becomes a different person. I kept silent, but then I acknowledged my sin to you. My bones were wasting away, and I was groaning while your hand was heavy upon me, but then I did not cover my iniquity. I said, he doesn't even say it yet. He doesn't say, here are my sins. 
I said simply this, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. He he doesn't have the ability to muster everything out into the open at once. He does have the ability to say, I want the Lord to see this now. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And that's all it took for him then to say, and you, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You lifted the iniquity off of me. The miracle is here is Scripture's invitation to the freedom which comes natively to an existential thinker. To that younger generation, this is automatic. I don't have to be what I already am. I, in my original position, I already am silent and hiding my sins and wasting away and groaning and suffering because of it. But I don't have to be that anymore. And for an existential thinker, for our younger thinkers, it is built into the worldview that they are presented daily, regularly, that that there is a freedom that they have not to be who they already are. Now, again, just like in modern thinking, we think determinism binds us in a certain thing and so on like that. There is in existentialism a thought that we just do it willy-nilly, and willy-nilly is almost the right term for it, right? When we just make random choices and go become whatever we want to become. This is similar to that in terms of the freedom of transformation, but it's also very specific in how it comes to pass. This statement, I do not have to be what I am, when I apply it to the fact that in verse 2, I am a deceiver. Now, again, there, there's no deceit because the man's already been delivered, but that's the point, that I am in verse 3, silent and deceiving about my sins, my nature. But I don't have to be that deceiver. And, and, and part of the reason for that, and in fact, it's very simple, part, the reason for that in reality is because a supernatural God is standing juxtaposed I mean by that, he's eminent and transcendent. He's, he's a supernatural God. He's transcendent. He's above all of this. And yet he's here. You know, he's eminent. He's right here and available to us. Right here, eminent with nature. I, personally, may not be able to change. So I, I, I've had conversations before, and, and we've done episodes before where I mentioned James 1 and the impossibility of an individual mustering the ability to change himself and it, and it sounds like I don't believe in free will when I'm saying all of that, and I'm not going to go rehearse that entire passage with you. James 1, 1 through 12 is what really makes this point. But, but in that passage, he does make it fairly clear that the reason people don't change is because they don't want to. And the reason they need God to change them is because even when God does change us, he has to change us, or he chooses to change us, by using things that are worse than what we were trying to avoid by being what we were when we weren't changed. If you held on to that sentence, it's accurate. So you can go back and listen to it two or three times and see if you can make sense of it. But it's the truth. The reason we don't change is because we prefer things the way they are, all things taken into consideration. Otherwise, we would already have done things differently. So when we say, well, I want to change, and then we take into consideration the cost of the change, we back off of it, which is why we can't be double-minded when we ask God for help, which all leads me to make this statement that I'm making here in this psalm, which is simply... I may not be able to change if I'm a deceiver, a sinner, a transgressor, iniquitous, whatever word you want to put on it. I may not be able to change, but I can ask for help. And that's what James 1 says. If any of you lacks something, wisdom, he says, 
Let him ask of God, who gives to all men freely, and he won't even rebuke you for asking. And that's what this guy does. In Psalm 32, David doesn't say, and I listed my sins to Yahweh. He says, all I said was, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. And in that moment, you forgave, you lifted the iniquity of my sin off of me. I'm not, and by the way, I'm not saying this passage is Arminian rather than Calvinistic, for instance. I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not a determinist. I say that all the time. I'm very defensive about it. I know I'm saying it way too often. But this is the reality. I'm not saying in this psalm that you need to be Arminian or Calvinistic. It has nothing to do with that. My claim is simply that the transformation from deceiver into confessor, from a sinner into a godly person, is the kind of radical change to which an existential thinker can relate. So that if I'm talking to a younger person and they believe their life is a matter of choices and occasionally you just decide I'm going to be a different person altogether than I was before. I'm going to be a different person. I'm just going to decide I'm going to be a different person than I was before rather than going through all the therapeutic work to get there and all that kind of stuff. No, I'm just going to be a different person. That's who I'm going to be. If, if I'm thinking that way as an existential thinker, even without using the word existential, a passage like this is a really beautiful invitation to a change that's real, not just instigated by the power of my will or the whim of my day, but by the promise of a God who says, you're right. You don't have to be what you were in your original position. You don't have to be deceitful. You don't have to carry that load by yourself. I can make you different. And so he lifts, he lifts that burden off of us. The second part of the psalm is equally valuable for connecting with that existential thinker, and I'll, I'll be shorter on this. We can get through it pretty quickly. In verses 6 and 7, this is, and all of this is about the transformation of the community, not the individual anymore, but that individual who becomes messianic, it's David after all, speaking to the community and saying to them, so all of you, y'all join with me in this, experience this with me. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time. He speaks to Yahweh, but to the congregation in the song. All right, so all of you offer this prayer to Yahweh, to you, Lord, at a time when you may be found or when they're seeking you, whichever way you take that. Surely, even when the judgment comes in that rush of flood, the great water, they're not going to reach the one who's turned to you because you're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. But surrounding me with shouts of deliverance in verse 7 is not David simply saying, I'm the only one that was preserved. He's saying, all of those who were delivered are shouting with me. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And for the Messiah to express that only makes sense because he conveys to the congregation his deliverance. What happened to him? Notice again that the godly is blessed, but he's a, for, a, a person who's blessed having been forgiven his transgressions and having his sins covered. The, the godly person is a person who has iniquity, but it's not counted against him. The godly person is a person who is without deceit, but it's after he was a liar. So all of that, it's not a matter of saying, you elite among you, you shout with me. It's an invitation to everyone to become that person. And so in verse 8, he gives them instructions about it. And because he is this messianic figure and because he models what we're supposed to become when we've been made different than we were in our original position, 
He's showing us what we should do too, but the way he does it is so beautiful. I will instruct you. He says, well, I'm going to teach you the lessons. And this sounds a little cold, but it's not. Listen to this. I will instruct you, and I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you. And then the statement is, with my eye upon you. And I know our tendency is to read that like the song I used to sing when I was in church when I was a little kid. You know, be careful, lands, what you do. Oh, be careful, feet, where you go. Oh, be careful, whatever. Because the Father up above is looking down in love. We said in love, but I think we meant in judgment. Because I always ended the song, I don't know what my teachers meant, but what I always heard was judgment. Because I I just heard it as a song that said, you better watch out what you're doing because God's watching. And you don't want to get in trouble with God. The point of this statement isn't David threatening the people. And I do think this is David speaking to the congregation. It might be God speaking to David. Either way, David is imitating then what God did with him to the congregation, so it still applies. For David to say to the congregation, I will instruct you and I'll teach you in the way you should go and I will counsel you. And then the image of the eye being upon you is, I think, begging for us to go back to all those places in Scripture where the Lord says things like, for the, for the eyes of the Lord through a prophet, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking to show himself powerful mighty on behalf of those who trust in him, whose hearts are fully dependent on him, whose hearts are whole. That is, if you trust me, I'm scouring the earth. My eye is looking for someone I can come and deliver because I want to help. I am looking for someone to trust me. And so when he says that, I will instruct you, I'll teach you in the way you should go, and I will counsel you because I am watching you and I am here to pick you up when you fall, and I know I'm going to tell you to do things that are hard to do and that are going to make you fear what's going to happen, but I'll be watching you. I'll I'll protect you. You think you're going to lose everything because you tell the truth, because you open up to me, but you won't, because my eye is searching for someone who will just trust me. So he says to the congregations, don't be like a donkey. Don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding. I know there's a difference, I'm saying. Just adding our kind of language to it. Without understanding, which has to be curbed with a bit and bridle, otherwise it's not going to stay near. Don't be like that. Come, be a part of the community that's trusting this God who's so faithful. Look, in existentialism, there is this extreme form of, it's not just individualism, it is isolation. One of the facts, I mentioned a moment ago, you know, dying is part of the facticity of existentialism. Can't get away from that. Everybody goes in a grave. The other fact that's associated so strongly with existentialism is the isolation of every individual. You can never access someone else's consciousness. It's why people are able to lie to you. And if they're effective liars, you could never know whether they were lying or not because you don't have access to what they're actually thinking. You can never know whether a person really liked the food you cooked for them or not. Uh, even if they've, but if they've learned to cover up, you know, that look on your face you get when you eat something you don't like, you just get, because you don't have access to their consciousness. That isolation that modernity introduced to us, existentialism made absolute. We can never connect with anyone. But in this psalm, we're invited to recognize this psalm finds not an escape from isolation and individualism, not an escape from the reality that it is challenging to connect with other people in an honest way, but a way to do something better than just live in that isolation. And part of it is this same kind of confession. It's simply by acknowledging the reality that we have an influence on and and a responsibility toward others 
who are in, and I could put it cheaply and say our sphere of influence, but it's not just a sphere of influence. It's our community. I mean, I can say I don't know what's in other people's consciousness, but here they are, and they're all bumping into me, and I'm experiencing things with them. And when things change for me, things change for them. And that's what the psalmist invites us to here, is to experience that change, not only in us, but to know that the transformation that takes place in us then becomes something that's turned toward others to experience that same thing, which is what comes out in the chorus of verses 10 and 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. We've all been there. David was there when he was silent and the hand of God was heavy on him. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The choice that remains is the same one that was there from the beginning, which is described throughout the psalm, which is honesty, confession. Let's just be open with God. He knows anyway, so let's just open it up to him. Confession, which comes with forgiveness, which brings deliverance, which brings rejoicing, not only for you, but also for this community that you're connected with. The gift of freedom to be other than what we were bound to be in our original position is an incredible offering from God in a psalm like this and throughout Scripture. That ability to be born over again, to start as a new person, is really a remarkable gift from the one who gave us our lives to begin with. So there is first this gift of freedom to be something other than what we were bound to be in our original position, and that creates a connection with that more existential way of seeing the world. And then secondly, the second hook or connection with that sort of existential way of seeing the world is the freedom of giving to a community beyond ourselves, that we're, we're not just isolated, sterile, alone. And that's, this is consistent, exactly consistent with what the New Testament teaches, for instance, in John, and I'll close with these words, that we love others because we love God, so part of the community, and that we love God, this is what takes us out of the isolation that would have been just ours in our original position, but that we love God because he first loved us. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.